G13, as will pretty much be all the sermons from now through the middle of January, um, due to the nature of the biblical text that we're preaching. So now is kind of your last chance. Um, if you're offended after this point, that's really on you, not on me. Um, this is the beginning of seven weeks on one of the most controversial passages of Scripture right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 reads, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. The next seven weeks, we're going to be talking about human sexuality. Today is a prolegomenon, an apologia, and an apology. Prolegomenon, literally means words in advance. Prolegomenon is the clearing of the throat, so to speak. And here's the clearing of the throat. My goal... Thank you for that, Keith, by the way. That was, that was not prearranged. You know, as I've been thinking about this series, I, I think at, at first I was thinking that my goal was going to be to make everybody unhappy. And I think I may yet manage that, but it would be more accurate to say that my goal in the course of these seven weeks is to make all of us uncomfortable, make all of us uneasy. And part of that's because I don't want to be alone. And part of that is because I think, given the situation that we are in right here, right now, I think we kind of have to be. The fact is, there has been a massive and rapid swing in public sentiment on the question of homosexual behavior. Huge swing inside the church and outside the church. Past couple decades have seen massive shifts in laws concerning marriage, concerning public accommodation, and we've also seen massive shifts in culture. Think about what sitcoms were like just 25 years ago. Think about Jack Ritter on Three's Company, right? Think about, uh, was it Klinger on MASH? These were the perspectives, uh, the, the portrayals of gay people on TV. In both of which cases, they were not actually gay people. They were just acting gay for the sake of, of uh, in Jack's case, being able to room with two beautiful women and clingers in hopes of getting out of the army. But, but stuff has changed. It's changed very quickly. Also what has changed is our understanding of human sexuality. Kinsey is not just a Showtime series. It actually is. Kinsey was a man who did do research, and he had a whole lot of questionable methods that he used, and there's much about his research that is not reliable. But much more reliable research has been done in the last several decades. We can say with a certain degree of confidence that 
somewhere between 1% and 4%, probably the higher end of that, of the population is almost exclusively attracted to people of the same gender. We know that almost 1% of the population is asexual, is genuinely not interested in any sexual activity whatsoever. We know that there are then also those who are at least to some degree bisexual. And we know that gender dysphoria, that is the feeling that you've been born into a body that doesn't fit who you are, is something that is real. Now, we do know, I should mention, that for most teenagers, for example, who experience, most children and teenagers who experience feelings of gender dysphoria, who at some point go through a a sense that that they're not, in fact, in the body that fits who they are, that usually by the time they're adults, that is resolved. But we also know that for some significant portion of the people who experience that, that never does resolve. And they go through life looking like men, but feeling like they're really women on the inside, or vice versa. We also know, we know for sure, that most of the efforts at what is called reparative therapy have proven to be utterly ineffective. There was a movement for some time that said that you could pray the gay away, that if you prayed hard enough, if you did enough counseling, if you spent enough time in accountability groups, that you could, in fact, change your orientation from being gay to being straight. There is some evidence that there are some treatments that do, in fact, help people who have same-sex attraction experience less of that and experience less of a need to act out on that and can enable them to grow in affection for people of the opposite sex. But the idea that people's sexual persuasions can be flipped like a switch if they just pray hard enough has been proven to not be true and to set up what has been a devastatingly harmful expectation that has led not a few of God's people to commit suicide. And there have been changes in the church. About 40 years ago, this book was published, it says, it's titled, The Bond That Breaks Will Homosexuality Split the Church? And the answer is, yep, kind of did. Or at least people's responses to it did. Here's a more recent book. This just came out in the last few months. It says the body of Christ is experiencing severe fracture. Schism is taking place on a scale not seen since the 16th century. And the primary culprit is the claim that the church has been wrong all along and its belief that homosexual practice is a sin. Others would say the same thing, except they would say the primary culprit culprit is the fact that the church has been wrong or has been right all along in its belief that homosexual practice is a sin. The reason homosexuality struck such a divisive chord is that essential sexual ethics are at stake when the gay Christian movement gives its blessing to homosexual practice. And these two authors, one of whom is a New Testament scholar, one a church historian, 
say they fear that segments of the Christian church are approaching apostasy and believe the church will benefit from a work that applies their respective disciplines to the study of homosexuality. Again, this specter is haunting Europe kind of language is not only found among traditionalists on this position. The language is equally strong among progressives. We've seen in the last several decades massive splits in mainline Protestant denominations, most notably for those of us who worship here in the Episcopal Church. The congregation that worshiped here from 1844 to 2013 decided in that year that it would leave the Episcopal Church and join the Roman Catholic Church specifically over this, this issue. And in the Catholic Church, we've seen Pope Francis speaking in ways that have not been heard from popes, certainly not recent ones. We find among evangelicals, among traditional Protestants, that there is not only the debate that has gone on quietly over the question of whether we are reading texts like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 the right way, but this debate is now in the open, and it is openly recognized among most evangelicals that it is in the open. And for, the, for, for the evidence of that, I give you the most recent catalog of Zondervan, which is probably the biggest evangelical publisher. They've got a new book out in which evangelical scholars are debating this issue. If anybody has their finger on the pulse of what is going on among evangelical scholars and thinkers, it is the people who sell them books. And the fact is that this issue has not only split the church, it has, in fact, given the church a certain reputation. A few years ago, a survey was done of non-believers, non-Christians, who are young, 18 to 35, and it asked them, what's the first thing you think of when you think of Christians? The majority of them said anti-homosexual. And by majority, I mean 91%. More than 9 in 10 young people who don't follow Jesus, when they hear the word Christian, think anti-homosexual. This is the situation that we're in. This is the situation that we are in right now, right here. There are a few different responses, a few different ways we can respond to this. A couple of them, I think, are quite immature, but that doesn't mean they're not common. One is to place our heads firmly in the sand or somewhere else and try to ignore it, to not talk at all about sex and human sexuality, to say, well, that's just not something that we're going to deal with here in church. That's not something that we're supposed to talk about in the pulpit. That's really something else. Never mind the fact that there's all kinds of stuff in Scripture about sex, not least an entire book of the Bible about it. And another immature response is to say, well, we should never have gotten to this place. The church should never have ostracized gay people and made them feel like they're less than fully human. Or the church should never have allowed those gay people to, to think that it was okay for them to do what they did. We should never have gotten to this place. Well, we're at this place, whether you like it or not. 
this is where we are. And I think pretty much everybody doesn't like it. But this is where we are. There are, I think, two mature responses. One is the one that immediately sprang to mind just two weeks ago as Joe was preaching to us on 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You'll remember what it says. It's actually reported, Paul says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among pagans. A man is sleeping with his stepmother. And you're proud of this. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, by that not meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters, in which case you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler with such a one do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So there are churches that would say that because people are engaged openly and unrepentantly in a sexually immoral lifestyle, that they should have nothing to do with them, that they should not even recognize them as Christians. There are churches that will say that because other people fail to affirm homosexual behavior as fully within the bounds of holiness, that they should have nothing to do with them. I will say, this standard does tend to be applied without full consistency. After all, it has been my experience that there are plenty of churches that are happy to condemn what they describe as immoral behavior while tolerating all kinds of other behavior that would fall under Paul's list of greed, swindling, idolatry, drunkenness, slanderer. I mean, if every church refused to have anything to do with the people who post all kinds of hateful rhetoric on the internet on both sides, well, you'd have a very, very limited number of people that you could deal with. I really do want to emphasize that this is on both sides. And as somebody who has a foot in both worlds, as somebody who is serving as the pastor of an evangelical church, somebody who is the past regional president of the Evangelical Theological Society who still describes himself and claims the label of evangelical as somebody who's unreconstructed in that regard. I do hold the scriptures to be true, entirely trustworthy. I know that world. And I also have been invited to be part of a progressive denomination where I'm very much in the minority among my colleagues as somebody who does identify as evangelical. And I drive a Prius, and because I drive a Prius, 
the only radio station I get is NPR. <clears throat> so I'm exposed to that context as well. I think I know wherever I speak. And I have been spending quite a lot of time, especially this summer, but for years, studying this issue and studying the way people study this issue. A different approach to this from expelling the immoral brother, which probably is, in some ways, not an option considering that when you're talking about, when Paul's talking about expelling the immoral brother, he's talking about somebody who was, who is in fact part of the community. You're talking about somebody who's behaving a certain way, who's part of another community entirely. It's different, difficult to say that you can expel somebody you don't have any, any authority to expel. But when it comes to how we deal with people who disagree with us on something that we, is re- we think is really, really important, people that we think are endorsing grave sin, whether it be that you think people who affirm homosexual behavior are guilty of endorsing a grave sin, or whether you think people who forbid it and think that it is inappropriate are guilty of a grave sin of homophobia. Jude says it toward the end of his letter, to be merciful to those who doubt to snatch others from the fire and save them, and to others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. There's a prayer in the prayer book that I've prayed a lot, and I think God may have been gracious to answer this for me. Page 18, a prayer for the unity of the church. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else may hinder us from godly union and concord, that as there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may be all of one heart and of one soul united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity, and may with one mind and one mouth glorify Thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It has struck me as we've worked through the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians since March, just how precious and how fragile the unity of the church is. If the unity of the church is broken, that renders us unable to fulfill Jesus' prayer that His people would be one, even as He and the Father are one, that the world may believe that God sent Him. But it also prevents us from growing together in holiness if we are allowing ourselves to be divided. So that's my apologia for what we're doing here. Apologia is a term that basically means a, an account, a, 
justification. When Peter says in 1 Peter 3, always be ready to give an account for the faith that you have. He uses the word apologia. Always be ready to give justification for what you're doing. And plenty of people would say that to spend seven weeks exploring the different ways people who call on the name of Christ understand these passages in Scripture about human sexuality, to try to understand each of them as sympathetically as we can, to try to see the strengths and the weaknesses in all the different perspectives on this. Some people would say that that is a fool's errand. But I think it's what we're called to. And so it's what we're going to do. And here's my apology. And I'm only making one. I apologize in advance for the ways in which my limitations as a human being, as a preacher, as a pastor, as somebody who reads and thinks and writes and communicates, I, I am sorry for the ways in which I will fail to do this well. I'm trying my best. But I'm sure that there are going to be arguments I don't understand fully. I'm sure there will be ideas that I haven't given sufficient consideration to. I'm sure that I will get up here and say one thing while I think I'm saying something else. For that I ask your grace and I ask your prayers as I go through this. But what I will not apologize for, what I will never apologize for, is speaking truly about what God has revealed in His Holy Word. I will not apologize for describing reality as it is, not as we might like it to be. I will not apologize for trying to show as much love and respect and grace as I can to people with whom I disagree who call on the name of Christ. And we'll see what God does with all this. Now will you join me in the words of the Nicene Creed as we prepare to take communion. After we say the creed, please come forward to the, uh, uh, the chancel here up by the font and uh, you can receive the, uh, the elements and then bring them, go down those stairs, bring them back to your seats coming around the back and then we'll partake of them together. Please know that the, uh, the bread is unleavened, the grape juice is white and the wine is red. We don't have the creed? Okay. Oh, the projector. Well, here. If you take these little prayer books in your... In your uh, see, these things are handy sometimes. And if... Oh, we got it? Okay, never mind. All right. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory.
to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.